We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, and I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast brought to you by betonline.ag. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius. And, uh, you know, today we had the NBA proposal come out and it's the best and juiciest details that we've gotten about basketball in a very, very, very long time. And so the initial plan for the show was for us to talk about that. And and we will certainly get to that uh, on the next show. But it wouldn't feel right to not address what's going on in the world um, with the George Floyd protests that really seem to be growing into, this is just one of those moments that, and in world history that, um, you know, we don't know where it's going to go, but this is, this is one of them. And it's, as such, it's important to think about and reflect upon. Can I just jump into, like, I would say this too, man, is we talk about the NBA, right? And we talk about the Lakers, but we talk about the NBA. We followed this game our whole lives, right? Like not reporting or recording a podcast, but just have been fans of this game. And the NBA and basketball in general, like this is 
this is a black league, man. Like it's an African American league, and and I feel like we would be remiss. It'd be kind of gross, actually, right, to profit off. Yeah, of to, to just and, sort of be like, oh, well, let's talk about let's talk about the NBA and try to separate it from all of its roots that exist within the world within the black community and just the human beings, right? Like, like this is, this entire issue is about recognizing the humanity of black people. I, uh, I want to tell a story real quick along these lines. I had a player and he's black and I was coaching a school in South LA. And so this is LA, LAPD. This is right in the heart of where the exploitation can be the worst in Los Angeles. And myself as a, I'm a passing white guy, you know, like I'm, I'm half Puerto Rican, I'm half Irish, but I can look like a white guy. I, <laughs> I'm going to tell two stories. I used to be a courier delivering title documents from like Remax and Prudential. And I don't even know if these companies still exist, right? But it's, it's when you buy a house, the paperwork that goes back and forth between the realtors, the people who finance it, the brokers, all that good stuff. And so I would, I'd have a route that I go every day in Ventura County. And my route was in Newberry Park, Moore Park, Thousand Oaks, Westlake, and Simi Valley. Darius is cracking up. Go no, ahead. already. Just already those names. Okay. So keep going. So, so if you don't know of these areas, this is, on, uh, this is just to the west of Los Angeles County. And it's very affluent areas. A lot of... A lot of athletes, a lot of actors, especially actors and actresses, live in that. It's really, really pretty, but it's also a very well-to-do. So I'm, I'm, uh, gosh, how old? I'm between 19 and 21 years old, and I have hair down to my butt. I have long hair down to my butt. This is 2000, 1999, 2000, somewhere in there. So I got hair down to my butt. I am driving a 1995 Ford Aspire with the hatchback. Is an ugly ass car, man. So it was purple. It looked like a pregnant roller skate. Of course, my first car was purple. I didn't even I didn't even make the Laker connection until now. That's hilarious. Um, so yeah, it's this purple 1995 Ford Aspire hatchback in this area where everyone's driving Benzes and Beamers and just like nice upper class rides, right? And so when I was working that route, I very much looked like I did not belong in this area. Just everything about me screamed, "This guy is an outsider." And so within a three-month period of doing that route, I got pulled over 19 times. I never got more. I had a fix-it ticket because my tail light, and I, I got, it was some other dumb thing where basically the first question they would always ask me is, do you have any drugs or any drug paraphernalia on you? I look like a, like a stoner, a drug sure. dealer, or something like that. I, right. This is them trying to root out the other from their community. I very much don't belong there. And I had one time this cop pulled me over and it was scary because it was off like a side road. It wasn't on the main drag. And he was convinced. And the first question he asked me, and this is before 9-11, was, do you have any small nuclear weapons in your car? And I found out later that this is a tactic that police will use sometimes. They will ask such an absurd question that if you don't laugh, it's indicative of guilt on your end, right? Like, you're supposed to be like, what? Yeah, right? like, like, holy shit, like, fuck? what are you even asking me? Like, what the fuck, you, right, the fuck did you just ask me? But 
me, like I'm, I'm the son of a dark skinned Puerto Rican man who just, you know, he had some experiences with the cop. He's told me some stories tonight um, about things that he went through. You don't laugh at a cop, right? Like it's whenever I see a cop behind me, uh, after all of these experiences, I hear the Jaws theme in my head, right? It's like it's like being hunted by a great white shark. That's the feeling it engenders. For me, right, we're going to get into, like, my white ass and how much, like, if that scares the shit out of me, what does that mean if you're black and you can't cut your hair? So this guy, this guy pulls me over, asks me about the small nuclear weapon. I don't laugh. He calls in backup, calls in a dog unit. They search my car for drugs and whatnot. And, like, they pull me out. They Like, I didn't give consent. It was, uh, and, like, what can I do? Like, I, who do I call the cops on? Yeah. For that violation, right? Because they assumed, and the, the, the thing was, is that it was the, it goes back to the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And the, I, I got pulled over 19 times in three months. I cut my hair, not because of this, but I'm sure on some subconscious level, it certainly contributed, contributed. I cut my hair. I never got pulled over again. And so the Jonathan story, I'm in South LA I, this is, you know, 15 years after I've cut my hair and had my experience with my cop, the cops where I could just magically make it go away with a yeah. haircut, right? Jonathan's black, sophomore, 15 years old, maybe 16. And it was lunchtime. There was, there was this main bathroom right by the entrance to the, to the gym, actually. And there's this main bathroom that he was going to use. And it was during lunch, and they were, they were working on the bathroom, that day, but they didn't have any signage. So it wasn't open the way that it normally would be. And Jonathan always had his headphones on. And so he's got his, and these are the over the ear type, not just the in-ear like, like you got. Uh, so he's listening to his headphones and he's walking into the bathroom that he probably goes and goes to pee in every yeah. day. Right. And the security guard is like off to the side of him and is like, no, you can't go in there. It's not, it's not open right now. And he's trying to flag him down. But Jonathan's not looking like he's in his own head, listening to his music, right? This is a very human experience that we all do, right? Like, how often do you put headphones on or listen to music and just like get a little lost in it, right? That's something that we, we all do. So he's doing this very human, especially at that age, this thing, just trying to go to the bathroom. And the security guard's trying to flag him down, but Jonathan doesn't see him. And he doesn't hear him because he's got his headphones on. So he goes in. And the security guard thinks that Jonathan has been defying him. So the security guard goes in and pulls him out and they get the campus cop and they cuff him. He's got to go sit in the principal's office in handcuffs and they got to call his mom, who's at work, who, you know, is, is working her job and having to leave for money that they really need to go address. She gets phone call like your son is in cuffs. Yeah. Right. Like, how does that make her feel? That's first and foremost. It has consequences at her work, too, I'm sure. Yeah. Right? I'm sure her supervisor didn't love that she bounced in the middle of her work day. Right? So it's just like a little bit, a little consequence in this whole thing. So he's co- she, she comes down a couple hours later. She hears his side of the story, their side of the story. She chews their asses out, like, why do you have my son in cuffs? And a couple, two and a half hours later, he's out of handcuffs. And that's the end of the story. He didn't get beaten. He didn't have a cop's knee on the back of his neck. But it is violence. It's still violence that is based on the lack of the benefit of the doubt. It's the presumption that there is some malintent 
of him walking into the bathroom against wishes. You don't, you don't, you don't look at the black kid walking into the bathroom that you're talking to that doesn't respond to you and say, oh, he can't hear me. You think, oh, he's saying fuck you to me. Yeah. And he's being defiant. And it escalates from there. That's what it all comes down to. And that's what, to me, all of this is about. This is what all of it is being protested. It's a spectrum. It's not just something so gruesome as how George Floyd died, but it's something like what happened with, with Jonathan or even lesser things. It's, and and that, that, that's what the rest of us have to address. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, look, man, like you've told me before about um, being in spaces where people think it's safe because of your ability to sort of blend in with others. Um, mm-hmm. I've never had the ability yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to blend in, right? Like, I'm half Native American and half Filipino. I get dark during the summer months, like when it's sunny outside. I've been blessed with enough melanin to tan up nice. Um, and... Look, man, like, I think every person of color, my wife is Filipino, our kids are basically little brown girls. Every person of color at some point in life experiences some sort of othering in some way, shape, or form related to how they look. It can be the frame of reference in which you described with the player that you coached. Look, man, like, I've been pulled over a bunch. I've been asked a bunch of questions about what I have in my car. Do I have any weapons on me? I've been put on the curb. I've had my car searched. I've been followed in stores. I've been called the N-word plenty of times by people who are strangers and by people who would know better. So a lot of this stuff hits home. For me in ways that I don't necessarily identify or understand the you mentioned the word violence earlier right so there's a physical violence the violence that that George Floyd endured and and that so many other black Americans African Americans have experienced that don't get on tape right that that aren't protested so so there's that physical violence that 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 people endure. There's also a psychological violence and that sort of constant threat or feeling of being threatened simply by walking on the street that people of color and I think especially from a lot of the listening that I've done over the years and especially recently that black Americans deal with on a daily basis, right? So, so there is a psychological violence. There is a toll that that takes on you mentally, right? And we've talked about this within the context of, of like sports, right? Like just a couple, just like our last podcast, we had talked about the idea of like coming back from a long layoff and this idea of like getting back up to speed mentally and like the mental toll that that's going to take on players in order to be able to play a game. So 
those mental tolls are real, right? So we all experience a certain sort of like mental toll that we experience in, in our lives. We like, we all experience that in some way, shape, shape or form, right? There's family problems, there's work problems, there's not even necessarily problems, but burdens that you carry or hurdles that you're trying to get it over from a mental standpoint day after day after day as part of your regular life. Right. We we all experience that people of all colors, creeds, nationalities, sexual orientation, everything. Right. Yeah. Like life is hard. Just just in general, life (laughs) is hard for like so many people. Yeah. But now if you escalate that to a level where you feel like your life could be in danger simply by leaving the house and that there is historical precedence for this, not historical precedents from a year ago or a week ago, but from centuries ago that is sort of weaved into the fabric. It's both centuries ago and 48 hours ago. It's not ancient history either. It's very current. It's funny. Like this is a tangent, right? Like, so our kids have started to have conversations about this, like at their schools, right? And so they're not at school, but they're doing like school from home. And they have these Zoom meetings with with their teachers. And we got an email from my eight-year-old's teacher. She's a third grader saying that, hey, at tomorrow morning's check-in, we're going to talk about the protests and George Floyd. And I listened in to that calm conversation and I thought the teachers handled it wonderfully. They talked a lot about like protest and what happened to George Floyd specifically and what that means and took questions and all kinds of other stuff. Right. So leading up to that conversation that was going to happen between my daughter and her teachers, my wife and I decided that we were going to sort of have this preemptive calm conversation with, with our kids. Right. And me and my wife, like, I was saying this to, to my wife. I was saying, like, look, like, based off of my own his, history and, and some of the things that I've endured in my life and some of the things that I've seen, there is a certain point in, I feel like, every person of color's life where their innocence is lost, Right. It gets chipped away at over time. And, and there is a point in time, though, where something so brazen happens to you that your worldview is just impacted and your innocence is then gone. That, that probably happened to me when I was eight or nine years old. I won't tell that story like on this podcast, but, but it happened to me like, like pretty young. It was actually the first time I was called the N-word, but that's, but that's a different story. I was quite young. That said, I, I told my wife, like, look, like, for all that I've seen, I want to try to, like, maintain the innocence of our girls, like, as long as I can, right? Just as long as I can. Like, I don't want them to be blind to the issues of the world, but I also don't want them too young to be exposed to the types of harsh truths that people will learn in due time and that are maybe not appropriate for them at this age, right? But anyway, so we were having this preemptive conversation with with our girls. So one of the things that um, my kid's school talks, talks about is this idea of being like a change maker, right? And how you can have a positive impact in the world by 
accepting people for who they are and, and being active in your community and not being like tolerant of someone because of their differences, but like embracing their differences, right? And and how not only is it okay to be different, like it can be a great thing to be different. Yeah, how long were we taught to be tolerant? Isn't that interesting? Oh man. Like, that, like just the whole concept of tolerating something? Don't get me started on tolerance as, <laughs> as, as well, an idea. Well, we should talk about it. Right? Maybe, we no. should, maybe this is the right time to get you started about that, man. Yeah, no. So we'll get to that. I, I'm okay, just going to finish sorry. this part here. The, so in, in talking to our girls about what happened to, to George Floyd, we were talking about change makers. And I basically said, you, you know, like one of the change makers that you guys have learned about at school is like Martin Luther King, right? And then she was nodding and talking to me. I was like, so what do you know about Martin Luther King? And then she was telling me about nonviolent protest and some of the things that he was against and, and like searching for equality for like black people and African-Americans. And then I was just like, yeah, exactly. And so those are, those are the same things that are happening now. And then, but when I said Martin Luther King and, and she started to make that connection, she said, Straight up, man. And like, this is where kids can say something that just cuts right to the heart of something without yeah, even man. knowing that they're actually cutting right through something, right? And she just straight up looked at us and said, but Martin Luther King was so long ago. And then followed up with, so, so like, why, so why is stuff like this still happening, right? Yeah, man. And my wife just looked at her and said, you, you know, like, that's a very good question. And the answer to that question is why we're still seeing this today in terms of protest, right? And so just to circle back to like where we're at now, the things that are happening now, like in the world and what we're seeing in terms of people basically saying like enough is enough like yeah it's all it's, around the world though. it's not just in the united states I, I saw one of these tiktok videos that someone posted to the twitter timeline and it was literally a little like one second clip of every single state in the union of like protests that are happening in every single state right mm -hmm. and it's true man like this isn't new but i hope it's new like if you know what what i mean i hope there's momentum this time that won't be squashed and we were talking about this some offline before we started recording the pod and it's one of the reasons why like i'm happy to talk about basketball as much as anyone else wants to talk about basketball right like you and me we can go on for hours and hours and hours i don't know how many times that we've said like oh we should have just recorded this because we had some random like hour-long calm conversation about, about basketball that was not a podcast like we've been doing this for a long time mm -hmm. but a part of me also feels like Basketball can just wait. And it's the reason why we're talking about this right now, right? Because right. I don't need, there was a point in time where the idea of basketball coming back, like during the pandemic seemed like it would be this great relief to us. And this idea that, that, 
oh man, like we're so hungry for something that's going to ease our, con- like to, to sort of offer an escape to us from shelter in place and, and a global pandemic and all of these people suffering and, and all of this. Now, obviously basketball returning was going to come with its own complications around COVID-19 and are we taking the right precautions and, and are people going going to be safe? But you and I have said multiple, multiple times that if they can get that stuff right and they can do this safely, we were going to feel great about being able to actually get some basketball back. Right now, it would be great to get some basketball back, but I also do not want anything to sort of distract really and and sort of try to bring us back to normal, quote unquote, where the issues of the day get in any way sort of subverted or put to the side, because I do feel like what's happening now is too important. It just is. So the question, I guess, is what's next? You know, one thing we've been talking about, I was talking about on Twitter before we started recording, is how to talk to friends and family about this. One thing that I've learned, Twitter, for example, permeates out into the real world a little bit, right? But... It's not, you know, it's not something where that world touches the same world. This is what I'm getting to is the people that listen to the show or know who the hell you or I are, (laughs) right, Um, are often residing on a different planet socially than their parents are, than their aunts and uncles, cousins, even family their own age. Even on Twitter, right? We've all got our little... There's a version of what's going on right now of lawlessness and looting and rioting and disorder where the idea of sending in U.S. military to quell it is being entertained by a U.S. senator and published in the fucking New York Times. Fuck you, New York Times, by the way. Um, I don't don't think they'll be picking up our pod feed now, Pete. Fuck them. (laughs) And so... We've got all of these different planets that we're living on where we need to do outreach mm. to get our version of the story in front of their their eyes. A, a lot of people of, of my belief set, at least, are uh, it, it feels like a this is the righteous thing to do. This is like, this is the time mm. to do it. There's no more waiting to fucking talk about this. I, like, I, I know this is supposed to be a Lakers podcast and basketball podcast and all of that. All the pieces matter, man. All the parts fit together. And and we cannot go forward without addressing this right here and right now to the degree that we can address this. So my question for you, Darius, is, is just what, what your exposure is to people of... So for like, I grew up in Little Rock, California. And Little Rock is on the other side of the San Gabriel Mountains that we all look at from LA. It's a suburb of Palmdale where Paul George grew up. I went there about four or five months ago, see my childhood home and uh, my bus stop. There's a place called Charlie Brown's and Charlie Brown's was my bus stop. And it's this general store, but it's kind of a tourist, not kind of, it is a tourist trap with every crazy knickknack you've ever seen in the world. You could lose a whole day in there. And walking through there, they had Confederate stuff. This is in California, right? They had stuff that had Confederate flags on it, little dolls and merchandise. Like I said, it's a knickknack store. So part of the compulsion I feel is like I grew up, I understand the mentality, I think, better than people who did not grow up Hmm. immersed in it. It's important that we visit 
each other's planets yeah. every so often socially and we've got all these people in our family that come from all of that surround themselves with the own their own media that they want to hear um we've got to cross cross over and and connect with them over our shared values that we have as family no i think that's important like start a conversation with a loved one that maybe you haven't talked to in a while this is our responsibility is to be like like look at this are you okay with this is this something that you're okay with and it's Something that's so ingrained, they're going to say, you don't have the context. They're going to say all sorts of awful things that keep them from addressing it. But that's what that's what has to be done, in my opinion, is that like it has to be put in front of people's faces and be like, we need to talk about this. And if we can't, and don't give up after that first conversation, because people are stubborn as hell. One of the things that happens that they talk about in sports a fair amount. And we saw this up close and personal as Lakers fans with Kobe Bryant. And and I think that there's a certain amount of this that is lived with like LeBron James too. But when you're a leader, there is, and we just got done watching The Last Dance. And so this was definitely true with Michael Jordan as well, is, is that when you're trying to lead, there's a certain amount of uncomfortableness that sort of leads to togetherness at the end. And that's an idea that I feel like where we talk about like how Kobe and Jordan were cut from the same, same cloth, right? Like they did not mind confrontation. Phil Jackson was like this too. Like he didn't mind confrontation because I think that he saw and, and, and there's a certain leadership style where they see con confrontation as a way for people to then in the end after those confrontations happen then you get on the same page and then you move forward together mm-hmm. that yes, there's yes. that that's i think at the root of what you're talking about that's what that is right that there's a certain amount of being uncomfortable and have there been tension and understanding that that exists between you and these other people be, because you are kin in some way shape or form yeah you and, and you got to do this with love I, I wish i would have included that earlier but like you guys have yeah. like your family like you've got some basis of trust to start these conversations off of right and don't give up after the first time no that's right that's that's totally right and i think that all of us probably need to reflect personally first and then move forward in order to have some of those conversations that you know that you need to have as well, right? Because honestly, look, man, like I think we've all gone through life at some point in time where we understood that uh, I'm not going to die on this hill today, right? Like I'm not going to have that difficult conversation today or I'm going to hold my tongue here because it's going to be easier to just sort of get through this 15 or 20 minute interaction, the subject will change and then we'll move on to something else and it'll be like, okay, well, what's for dinner, right? And then Mm -hmm. later on, we'll talk about the next thing and then that will be that. And I think what you're talking about is finding that idea within you and saying like, no, this is too important. This is too important. And- And there is going to be a certain point in time, I feel like, in everyone's lives where they're going to encounter someone who means something to them. And you're going to have to say, because you mean something to me, Mm -hmm. it's important that you and I have this conversation, 
right? Because if you didn't mean anything to me, I would let this slide because I don't give a shit about you. <laughs> avoidance, like love doesn't mean avoidance. No. It's actually the opposite. You have to address issues that come up between you because that, like, this is something that's going to be such a big issue that it's going to poison families, right? It's going to tear families apart where the son and the father are like the father's really conservative and the son's going like, no, dad, this is fucked up. I think that there's always going to be a commonality amongst people unless you're just evil, right? And there are evil people in this world and hopefully you don't have evil people in your family, right? I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to whoever is listening to this. But there is a commonality of like what's right and wrong. And maybe I'm naive, but in the end, I think that most reasonable people will agree that like human life means something. We need to try to get everyone to the point where we are all sort of relatable and we should expect the thing that we want for ourselves that it's okay for other people to want those same good things for themselves. Even before that, it's the elimination of the otherness that, you know, I was talking about with my hair story with Jonathan, right? It no, that's exactly right. And I don't know, man. I just feel like I've lived my whole life trying to figure out ways where the idea of empathy is going to be a two-way street. I honestly feel like one of my best qualities as a person is my ability to sort of put myself in someone else's shoes and try to understand their yeah. their perspective. I feel like that that comes across in my writing. I feel like it comes across in my conversations with people. I feel like, and, and sometimes to my detriment, like I'm, I'm willing to give people the benefit of the doubt at times because I'm trying to put myself in their shoes to understand their, their perspective. And, and there's an empathy that I try to have for people because I understand as someone who has been othered in his own life, that that's really not the way I want to be treated. And, and so what can I do to try to not do that to other people? So in conversations that I try to have with, with people, it's almost always from the perspective of like, all right, well, why do you think this? Here is my perspective. And where can we find the common ground? And when you find common ground with someone, then you inch closer and closer to pull them a little bit more towards your side based off of those common beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's sort of what you were talking about earlier in terms of those shared values that you have with people based off of the things that bring you together with that person in the first place, right? And if yeah. you can find ways to dig into those parts of your relationships with people and then relate those to the things that are wrong in the world, then you can start to shift perspective, right? But I don't know about you, man. Like, you've been pretty, like, optimistic. I've seen you, and you've said this to me, too, like, online and then behind the scenes as well, that I feel like you have a certain optimism that mm -hmm. things are going to turn out well, that, like, the good guys are going to win, right? And yes. I hope that's true. I hope that's true. With all my heart, I hope that's that's true. I also feel like 
this is just so very big and it can be so dispiriting at times. I scroll my timeline, man. I see people saying things, you know, both sides in things, co-opting ideas and then flipping them around in order to make false equivalencies. Things I've seen on my timeline, just my, when I say my timeline, I mean on my Twitter timeline, you, you know, ideas about how like, oh, well, just two weeks ago, you were talking about how protests were going to cause the spread of the virus. Mm-hmm. And now you don't care about the spread of the virus. It's, it's just like, please don't make a false equivalency about like protesting the opening of like your barbershop or your nail salon or like being able to eat and eat in a restaurant to what people are protesting now. People are protesting basically like human rights. So conversations that happen like that, that I see, those are dispiriting to me. And they make me second guess. They make me question about how close, not how close we are, but like all the work that has to be done just to even get to a point where you feel like you're even inching closer to a point where you feel like, oh, we're on our way, right? Like, it's not even, it's like that old saying that that they had about, I can't remember, the, like, the prospect's name, but how he was always two years away from being two years away. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruno yes. Camoclo, yeah. Right? And that that's sort of how I've been feeling about some of the things that i believe in where i want us to get to where that we're two years away from being two two years away darius how long did it take for the built bullshit to get built up oh man it's been it's been forever man like my whole life fuck and you know 10 times my life yeah yeah this is 400 plus years of bullshit built up you think we're gonna pick all that apart clean it all off in a year or two? No, I hear what you're saying. It seems, and like I said, I don't want to seem like a wet blanket. So much of it seems like insurmountable, right? But then... It's not. It's one step at a time. Exactly. But then what what grounds me in all of this is the... It's, it's like going back to the golden rule that you're taught when you're, you know, four years old or five years old in kindergarten, right? About do unto others. And that idea of you make change by changing one mind at a time. And Mm -hmm. I think that that goes back to what you were talking about earlier, about having conversations with those who are close to you and and trying to find that common ground with them in in order to move them onto the side in which they can see what we see as clear lines between right and wrong. Right. And. The more that each individual person can do of that within their own lives, then then that's yes. how progress is made. And be forceful in your advocacy. That's the power that we all have. This whatever sphere of of family and friends that we have that we can voice those thoughts to. That like that's our responsibility to do it. I don't know, man. I've met so many good people. I know so many good people, right? who are, and they're not good because they believe what I believe, right? They're not good because be like, because we're like-minded or because like we're going to vote for the same guy or because they like the same basketball team as me, 
right? They're good people because consistently throughout their everyday lives, like they're the people who are trying to help and they're trying to do the good things, right? And, and I don't always want to be bogged down by the idea that everything is so bad because honestly, it's not. It's not. Darius, Darius, bro, look at what's happening. Look at the political advocacy of young people right now. And, and older as well, yeah. right? But the, look at the people who are in the streets who are protesting this. The, the thing that underlines all of this, that it's been an accelerant on our society, yeah. is social media. The average 16-year-old has so many more social interactions, and they're so much more socially and emotionally intelligent because of the, the, just the sheer volume of interaction with other human beings and different situations that they're put in as a result, that the level of advocacy that I see from young people from that age through their mid to late 20s is astounding. It is a reflection of the human spirit. And it's something that it will, I will always remember how people have reacted to this and how of the solidarity. It's around the world, Darius. Did you see the yeah. the guys doing the haka, right? The different cultures that are coming together that are being like, nah, man, like there's a basic humanity that has to be honored before we continue a functioning society. Y yes. And I would say this too, like distinctly, like as an American, Right. And, and someone who was, look, man, born in California. And like I said, like I'm half Native American. My ancestors have been there a long time before a lot of other people came to America, before there wasn't America, mm -hmm. right. really. The idea of perseverance and of being able to see that. And we've talked about this in sports a lot, too, but not all progress is linear and to understand that we're going to continue to sort of push forward and seek out the best version of what we want the world to be, right? And that starts at home. It starts locally. It starts what you can do in your own community. And then you start to branch that out so that more and more the world that we inhabit is going to be reflective of what our values are. And I think that in getting back to sort of the purpose of this whole conversation that, that we're having, like, that's the point. I've talked about this a fair amount from like my own personal perspective, but like, let's keep it real, man. Like, this is about black people. We started out the pod this way. Like, we were like, oh, let's talk about the NBA, but the NBA is a black league. Like, no, like, like, let's... Let's get to it, right? So we need to be good, good allies, man, and have that filter out through all of our different communities, right? The, the people who look like us, the people who don't look like us, and find that common ground with people in order to progress things positively. And we're going to take some hits along the way, but I think that the optimism that I sense from you, like, like I'm behind that as well. Keep fighting. And, and what that means is, is keeping your head. It's keeping your heart in the right place. It's not getting frustrated and walking away from the relative that won't listen. It's the ability to persevere through those difficult conversations that need to be had with the people that we know and love because it's the right thing to do. 
this is the first time in a long time where I felt my coaching juices flowing, right? Where I'm like, all right, y'all, get out there. Let's kick some ass, you know, like keep, but keep fighting. Don't give up. Like it's going to be frustrating when we hit hard times. My, me- my favorite memory ever coaching, 12 point comeback. We're down, down 12 with four minutes left, league title on the line. We came back, tied the game. When we were down 12 with four minutes left, the best thing we did was kept our heads. And we went down, it was a game where we were down from like four to six points for most of it. And then they just hit two bullshit threes. Like both of them banked in type threes. Fucking kidding me. So we go from down from six to 12. And like, it's high school game. And these games aren't like 115 to 112. 12 points in four minutes is a lot. No, it's just like 12 points is literally like, we've only got 48. Like that's basically like that's a quarter of the entire points that's, that's been bro, scored yes, right that's right yes sir that is right and that's our deficit that's not how many points we have to score that's how many more points that we got to score than them and these fucking kids kept their composure and they fought and they fought and they fought and that's the best that we can do in when it's on the court in life it's that like it's going to feel discouraging yeah if it was easy we would not be in this situation in the first place so it's going to take work. It's going to take years in some cases of conversations and love and patience to get through all of this. And I'm wishing you all luck in doing that. You've been listening to Laker Film and Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. Baines has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. They will. Campbell in and out. The ball is tipped and it's saved. Three seconds left. Here's Van Exel. This is for the win. He got it. Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. An amazing performance by Kobe. With his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I know Red Arbach is uh, rolling over. Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you That's kidding it. me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? How strong was that? A triple and a fall away in the corner with a shot clock down. Lakers by three. Ryan spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. And the critical part was Pietras jogging back, didn't bounce the floor. It's a two-for-one situation. Kobe Bryant picked up by Powell. There's the move. Two, one. Listen! Unbelievable. Bryant. Yes! And that was a little tough to Alvin Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me?